So I don't know about you, but in my house growing up, dinner time was very important. We were a family that ate dinner at the kitchen table almost every single night. There had to be a real major reason why we didn't sit down together. And Sunday was family day after going to church in the morning. My brother and I would help our parents with whatever chores. And my mother would cook a wonderful meal. And we would sit down together and have a nice meal. Now, my mother grew up, as many of you know, very poor. She was uh, raised by a coal miner in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And she was one of 12, and her mother died when she was 12, and her father remarried somebody who had 10 children. And life was very, very difficult. Um, and which we don't even need to go into the details, but it was a hard, hard, broken life. When my mother graduated from high school, she moved down to Baltimore, Maryland, to be near her sisters, and got a job as a secretary in a school. And my mother studied how to, I guess I should say a person of class. My, the way my mother would put it in those days. But my mother wanted to learn how to have a good life. And these were things she understood. So she learned to dress just right. And she learned to speak in a way where her diction was good. She worked at getting rid of some of those um, idiosyncratic words from the coal mining community. And my mother tended to never say a bad word, lest somebody think less of her. And in my mother's house, the books that she turned to as the definitive answer to how to live was Emily Post's etiquette book and Vanderbilt etiquette book. And she would have them out on the kitchen table and my friends and I would come and we would tease my mother and make fun of her and we would slip through the book and find out, oh, that the appropriate proper way to eat grapes is by cutting them with scissors, which we thought somehow was hysterical. And so we would tease my mother, but my mother worked hard to create a family where we could all be nurtured and we could live in peace. And we did. We teased my mother endlessly, and it was after she died, when I went through her papers, I actually found a copy of Red Book from, let's see, if I was born in 57, it was probably 1954, my parents got married, from 1954. And it, it was a Red Book that had a Thanksgiving dinner on the front page. And then she had pinned in it different 
recipes. Now, by the time I came along and was helping my mother in the kitchen, my mother could make Thanksgiving dinner with hands tied behind her back. She never looked at recipes. This was just something she did. But my mother studied how to put on the right Thanksgiving dinner, how to bake a turkey, how to make perfect stuffing, how to make the pies. And her pumpkin pies were delicious and beautiful. My father made her this thing with a bottle cap on a piece of wood so she could press out pieces of dough and then have those little stars all around the edge of the crust just right and they would brown perfectly. And in this Red Book magazine, I found that that example was in there for baking pies. So my mother studied how to put on a good meal. And so meals at my house were not something to be taken lightly. Of course, we all know you don't chew with your mouth open. You don't put your elbows on the table while you're eating. The napkin goes in your lap. But even more importantly than that, it, were the, it was the words that were spoken at that table. Dinner time was a time to lift each other up. Dinner time was a time to listen deeply to the stories of each other's days. Dinner time was the time when we came together, starved for a good meal and starved for a good word. And those things would be fed to us. And so learning to have good conversation was important in my home. Now, it didn't mean that we didn't go deep on conversations, that we didn't, my, I come from a very much a debating family, where we would debate issues and concerns of the day, and we would talk deeply and sometimes stay at that dinner table for hours. But we did it without ever tearing each other down, without insulting each other, without being abusive to each other. We learned to hold the differences, and my mother was a Democrat, my father was a Republican. And so, you know, the, just, I grew up in a family where diverse thought was a thing that existed in harmony and peace. And so we, talk, we spoke deeply about things. And I think that that's a lesson that many of us were raised with. And I'm afraid sometimes that the world has forgotten it. We've forgotten to come together to the table to be fed, and to be fed body and spirit. Now, lot, there's lots of memes. Everything is, is cut down to, you know, three things to fit on a meme. You can't put too many words on a meme or they don't work well. So life has been condensed to memes. But one of them is about when you speak, is it true, is it necessary, and is it kind? I think that touches the surface. But in Philippians, Paul asks us to do and speak and live what is true. And to live what is true means we need to understand our own truth and be willing to look through the lens of someone else, or at least try. 
so that we can see their truth. So we're called where we are to seek out what is true. And to seek out what is honorable, what is good, what, what, what honors the other person, what honors ourselves, learning not to put ourselves down, learning not to put you down, and of all things, to honor God and to not put God down. Seeking whatever is honorable and whatever is just. We need to speak words that seek what is just for all people, realizing that we come into the world with different personalities, different experiences, and that we need to see what is just for all people. How do we make the world so that all people's needs are met? How do we work in a world so we're not just seeking our own way, but seeking each other's way? And Paul says that whatever is pure, that calls us into our central being, a purity, a childlikeness. Jesus says, you know, unless you come to me like a child. That sense of purity, that sense of innocence, that sense of just being willing to look for what is truly, truly good at the core, seeking goodness for the world. We seek what is pleasing, whatever is pleasing. Now that doesn't mean to go off and um, forge ourselves on fine food and luxuries for ourselves while others have nothing. But what is pleasing? Whatever makes you feel good and others feel good so that we can journey together with the pleasure that God has tried to bless us with, and we turn away from it so often. I truly believe we walk through our days missing blessing after blessing after blessing because we are so focused on ourselves or, or whatever is troubling us that we miss the blessings. God wants there to be pleasure in our lives. And we should take those moments to see each other. Take those moments to smile at each other. Take those moments to be with each other, even when we have to find creative ways to do that. To look for what is pleasing and be pleased by those good moments. And whatever is commendable, we are to find what we can commend to each other because God has commended it to us first. We're to find those things that are the backboning tenets of our faith. Love and peace and mercy and forgiveness. Those things that are commendable that are based in who we are as followers of Jesus. And then Paul tells us, and I love this, 
it. Do those things. We are not to live mediocre lives. We are not just to say, well, that's good enough. We are to seek excellence from ourselves, from our families, from our community. We are to seek a more excellent way. A way that shines, that is above reproach. A way that is good and value-added in our lives and in others. And anything that's worthy of praise. Anything that is worthy of praise. Because we are living with a focus on praising God. On saying thank you to God for the goodness in our lives. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to make this world more just. Thank you for the blessings that you bestow upon us. Thank you for teaching us about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to excellence. And we praise you for that. So we're to seek all things that are worthy of praise, and the praise is not to us. The praise is to God. We praise God for all that goodness. And when we live lives full of praise, we feed a world that is starved for a word. Starved for a word of hope. Starved for a word that makes them feel good about themselves. That makes them know that they are beloved children of God no matter how they are made. They are made in God's image and they are beloved. Whether we agree or not, we are beloved to God. And those differences are the things that make us unique. Those are things that we should learn to honor in each other. So that we can lift each other and hold each other in love. We're starved for a word of goodness. So today, let me offer you one. You are enough. You are enough exactly as you are, that God loves you, that you're God's child, that there is truth and honor in you, that there is a seed of justice in that pure soul of yours, that you are pleasing and commendable to God, and that you are excellent. And for you, I give God praise. That is the word I offer you. And I ask you that you go out into a world that is starved for a word and offer one that lifts them up. In Jesus' name, amen.